sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, September 27th, we are studying Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 to 55. In today's text, the Lord teaches his people about life in the promised land. He gives them instructions concerning the cycle of years of rest for fields and for redemption of property. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Martin Dressler. Pastor Dressler serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. Good morning. Pastor Dressler, as we get started today, talk to us about a little bit of context. Get us started with the book of Leviticus. I know we're toward the end of it. What should we know about the book and what's been happening leading up to chapter 25? Yeah, so uh, overall, the book of Leviticus is uh, God's uh, design for his people, how to set them apart uh, as his people uh, in the context of being surrounded by all of these uh, pagan uh, nations, these nations who have foreign gods and idols, which is a very dangerous thing for the people of Israel. So having these uh, liturgical, especially these liturgical um, uh, aspects of life well-established helps to guard their identity as the people of God, uh, to set them as uh, unique people and to remind them of their identity constantly as the people of God who are supposed to live in a different way uh, with respect to God directly, respect to one another, uh, respect to uh, all of creation. And we especially see that in today's uh, text as well, uh, because it really has to deal with um, the fact that uh, God is working through his people, but it has implications not only for them specifically, but also for creation as a whole, you know, even the land itself. And so that's kind of where we are right now. We've already gone through in Leviticus some of these uh, uh, rituals that are repeated uh, routinely. Uh, these are broader, you know, you've got like a year uh, you know, seven-year repetitions or 50-year with the Jubilee and stuff like that. Um, so it sets these broader contexts and reminds them of their relationship with the land and with each other as well. All right. So with those thoughts in mind, we're going to jump into this text. There's a lot here, some background as we go through the text that we'll need to, to unpack because there's some practices that maybe seem unfamiliar to us, uh, but all related to the, the relationship of the people to the land that belongs to God and setting them apart as his people as they live there. So, Leviticus chapter 25, we turn to the text. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servant, slaves, and for your hired servant, 
and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. 
and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's our text for today. That is Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 to 55. So, Pastor Dressler, overall, it seems there's three primary topics going on in this chapter. And two, the first two are very much related. The Sabbath year related to the year of Jubilee, and then the matter of redemption of, of property and people. So let's take those one at a time, starting with the, the Sabbath year. Help us into some of the details as it would have been practiced among the people of Israel. Yeah, sure. So that, that sounds great. Um, so <clears throat> I don't want to spend you know too much time on on the, on that side of things. I'd rather get to the the. I'm, see, I'm a systematician by training, less than a an exegete. So that's okay. not I make my hay. But uh, we have to organize things and right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, speaking of the Sabbath year, then, so uh, just practically speaking, it was something like this. So for six years, all of the normal uh, agricultural uh, agrarian practices uh, were done: sowing, pruning, uh, gathering, all that kind of stuff. Just sort of ran its normal course. Uh, on the seventh year, um, what's so wonderful about this is that not only do the people get to enjoy a Sabbath, but the land itself enjoys a Sabbath, and so it kind of lies fallow. Um, there's none of that sowing and uh, none of the pruning either. Um, but that doesn't mean that the land stops producing. Uh, which is a, a caveat that's added in there. Uh, the fallow land still produces stuff, uh, and it would produce enough for um, the owner, uh, for hired workers, uh, the sojourners, and even for the cattle and the wild animals. So essentially, 
uh, what's being said here is that it, it becomes common property, right, for everybody, that this is land that everyone can come to and, and, and glean from, as it were. Um, now, the, the question, this is interesting, that, that uh, although the Sabbath year is really addressed in the first few verses, uh, there's a question that sort of lingers in the back of the mind that isn't answered until uh, verses 20 to uh, 22. The question being, well, what do we do on the seventh year, you know, when we're not allowed to, to gather the stuff and we're not allowed, or not allowed to gather, but not allowed to do our normal agrarian practices, what's going to happen? So God says that on the sixth year, he's going to create this super abundant crop, as it were, uh, which uh, provides for them not only the seventh year, but into the eighth year, and actually suggests that even into the ninth year, there's going to be some left yeah. over. So just going back to that for a second, uh, it says, uh, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will commend my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old crop until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Um, so it's uh, uh, the idea, again, is that, that they let this land just, just lie fallow and that they don't do any of the, the standard practices that they would typically have done. That's, the, that's how it would have been enacted anyway. Yeah, that, that note about the way that the land produces super abundantly during the sixth year to the effect that you're even eating it by the ninth year. I mean, they've, they've experienced this to a certain degree in the practice of gathering manna. So they're supposed to gather twice as much manna on the sixth day so they can eat on the seventh day. But then when that eighth day and ninth day roll around, you're gathering again. It just strikes me that when they get to the promised land, then the gifts of God just overflow even more abundantly than what they're receiving now in the wilderness. Uh, yeah, it's just a, an amazing thing that the Lord, and that, that goes to the trust of, of what's happening here. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we, we unpack some of the theology that, you know, if you don't work, it's going to be okay. God's, God's going to, he's going to give you what you need. Right. Yeah. Contra-Egyptian thought, right? Yeah, that's right. The Egyptian way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we'll, we'll we'll make sure we get back to that. So then, the the Sabbath year every seven years, and then the the year of jubilee is like the the Sabbath of Sabbath years. So right. how do what happens in the how do we get to the year of jubilee? What's the counting, and how does that you know just take this even farther? Yeah, well, the counting is sort of a little bit uncertain, right? There is some debate about how that all plays out. Um, there's some question as to uh, when it actually began, although the uh, uh, what time of year it was, actually. Although the, the consensus, the standard way of saying it is that it, um, it, it acted according to the uh, agricultural calendars that would kick off kind of in the fall. Um, and it would be announced by a, a trumpet on the, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, so on the Day of Atonement, uh, you know, the, 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 you guys have already talked about that uh, already a little bit, so I don't have to rehearse that. Um, so we're looking probably around September, October, something like that, right. that time, time of the year. Uh, the other problem is, you know, what year did it actually occur on? Uh, because <clears throat> we don't always count the same way. Uh, Hebrews have a tradition of, of inclusive counting, uh, whereas we generally have a practice of exclusive counting. So with uh, inclusive counting, you count year zero as number one, right? Your starting point, that would be number one. Um, so uh, the, some people would say it would actually fall uh, on the 49th year, but the more common interpretation and the one that uh, CPH, the CPH commentary and the study Bible run with is that it actually occurred on, on the 50th year. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's when it would generally fall, it would be on the, on the 50th year. 
Right. So the, and the, the thought there is seven sevens, mm -hmm. right? The, and just like with the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost from chapter 23. So the Jubilee year is, is a Sabbath of Sabbaths, the, the seventh seven. So 50, again, with the counting. Yeah, that's not the way we always think about it, but that's where 50 comes in. So what happens then in this year of Jubilee on this 50th year? Yeah, so uh, a lot of things. And so you already commented a little bit, and we're going to get there again, about the trust that's required for um, uh, a Sabbath year. With the Jubilee, in a sense, there's even a greater amount of trust that's that's required here because of the the, um, the societal changes that would take place. I mean, these were really significant things that would happen here. So, um, you know, the way that God kind of established things was that um, he allotted land to the various tribes, and people were granted land uh from him as sort of an inheritance. Um, and uh, people could, it was, it was interesting because they talk about buying the land, but it's really not so much that it was sold and bought. It's more like leased because it was the produce that, and, and what the land would, would, would uh, you know, we'd gather from the land as far as uh, farming is concerned. That's really more so what was sold. Um, so in this Jubilee year, if something had been sold, uh, it would be returned to its, uh, to its original owner, right? Um, there were three ways of, of gaining land back. Uh, the first way would be that a, a kinsman redeemer kind of pays for it. Uh, now, the other possibility would be that the guy who sold it has somehow accrued enough wealth to purchase it back. Now, I know I was kind of wondering, well, how does that work? If he doesn't have a land, you know, how, how does that happen? Um, so one of the possibilities is that he wouldn't have to sell his land uh, completely, right? He might actually retain some of it and be able to work some of that and then be able to regain the, the portion of it that he sold. And the final way, of course, is actually the Jubilee, uh, when all that land would be returned. Um, another thing that would happen would be uh, regarding houses, you know, and, and, and what would happen with the houses. So it seems like there's a couple different things that would happen here. Um, there is a difference between uh, houses that are inside a city wall and outside a city wall, and also Levitical houses. Those are kind of like three different categories and it plays out differently. So um, if it's a, a house inside of a city wall, that doesn't fall under the same regulations as does the land. So if it's inside a city wall, you can redeem that house back within a year. But after that, it goes to the new buyer and that becomes his property in perpetuity, it kind of remains his. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a house that's outside of the city walls, it's sort of taken as part and parcel with the land. So it falls under the same rules as the property, right? So it, um, uh, with the uh, Levites, um, they only have the cities, right? They're, they're treated differently than the other tribes because they don't really have a, a land per se, they have these cities. And so for them, the houses are considered to be the land as it were. So the land, um, the, uh, the uh, rules and regulations that govern land distribution and land reclamation in Jubilee, that applies to the houses of the Levites because that is sort of what they have to go on. Right. Um, so those are the things. And they all, so the houses can be re, uh, returned if they're part of the land uh, based on the same principles that are uh, governed the Jubilee. So all of, all of those parts of the chapter then deal with the matter of land, houses, and how you take, but then what about the people? How do you take care of the, the people themselves? That seems where the rest of the chapter deals with. Yeah, yeah. So you have this also this concept of um, resident aliens or something like that, right? And I think that's a helpful description. So a resident alien is most likely someone who is um, so poor uh, that they've essentially lost all of their land. Okay. So what happens with with that 
person who sold all his land for various reasons, you know, famine or, or maybe poor management even or something along those lines. Um, that person kind of is allowed to stay on the land uh, to work at, usually as a manager, right? So he becomes a manager of the land um, and is provided for by the land as well. So he, he's not kicked to the curb as it were, right? He is still provided for. Um, and additionally, uh, no interest could be provide, could be taken from that guy, right? So if he's that down on his luck, you're not going to say, okay, fine, and I'm going to charge you interest on top of that, right? Um, love for the neighbor, is, it's seen throughout this entire text. It's, it's very, very clear uh, in these practices that today would be regarded as really bad business practices, frankly. Sure. Um, you know, yeah, you could also sell yourself as, as a servant. Um, the Israelites were not treated as, as slaves among one another, but more as uh, hired laborers that would um, uh, pay off a debt. Um, and they also would be then uh, released at, at the Jubilee, or again, if they earned enough, um, they could pay off um, the remainder of time, whatever is left until the Jubilee. You know, they could kind of figure out how much would my service be worth up until that time, and then they pay that off. So again, you're not purchasing the person, you're purchasing the labor. In the same way that you're not purchasing the land, you're purchasing the produce from the land. The same thing sort of applies to the people of Israel as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. So all of the, all of this, this is the what the Lord lays down for this cycle of Sabbath years, Jubilee years, kind of the, the culmination of all of it. So that gives us the, the basic outline of how it would have been practiced, or at least how the Lord laid it out. So let's let's talk about theology of the text then. And maybe the, the place to start is where the chapter starts. This is a common refrain in the book of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses, or sometimes to Aaron, but usually to Moses. Why is that significant in this chapter? Yeah, I, th I think that is absolutely huge because it's, it's Yahweh, who's, Yahweh who speaks here, right? And, and the point is being driven home. This is not Moses who's just coming up with this stuff because he thinks it's a good idea, right? This, uh, these kinds of practices and these orders have a divine force uh, that comes behind them. So it's not just Moses talking out of his hat. Uh, Moses is, again, uh, the mouthpiece of God. And so these, these uh, regulations and these rules and these practices are something that God simply uh, expects of his people, um, which is a really kind of a cool thing. The other aspect of this that I think is so wonderful, and we, you, know, you, you touched on this a little bit already as far as the, uh, uh, the wilderness wanderings, <clears throat> is that they don't have any land at all yet. Right. <laughs> you know, that's so crazy to think about. But all of these, these practices are already being taught to the people of Israel in anticipation of their uh, taking control of the land you know, and receiving it as a gift. Um, and you know, I, I'm already waxing uh, uh, dogmatic here. That's okay. Uh, but when, when, you, uh, when you consider the promises of God, that's always how they work, isn't it? Right. So when God makes a promise, they are, it is so certain that we can speak of it as if it had already been accomplished. And it's like, like baptism in that way, right? So uh, in baptism, I'm declared to be a saint now. Uh, I've declared that uh, you know, I have eternal life now. Neither of those two things is immediately obvious because I'm going to die, and I'm going to be, unless Christ comes back, and I'm going to be buried in the ground, right? And so it doesn't seem that way. And I know for a fact that my life does not always demonstrate the fact that I'm a saint. Uh, sometimes I act very much not like a saint. Um, and yet the promise of God is such that we can speak as if that were already the case because it's grounded in God's promise um, that, that uh, in, in, is so certain that it sort of already anticipates what's going to be the case. And the Israelites certainly do that regarding the, uh, regarding the land that's to come. 
Yeah, yeah. This is one of those sections in Leviticus where the Lord speaks to his people of what they're going to receive, and it is so certain that he can give them these regulations now. And again, the, the fact that they're his regulations has been a, a key theme throughout the book of Leviticus, especially in connection to the holiness of God. God's holiness isn't something that, or holiness in general, isn't something that people have to achieve or earn. It's always received as gift from God. Mm -hmm. And so to see that this, almost this entire book is God speaking to his people, he is showing them what it means to receive his holiness. And here, how do you receive his holiness or how do you live in the holiness of his name? It's, it's very much connected with the matter of the land. So again, that just that theme of him speaking continues to fit into this, this idea that Leviticus is a book that is God giving to his people, not them having to earn something from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, one other point you know, about that, it was just kind of fascinating. I was listening to something the other day, and, and they made the point that for, for most peoples, um, groups of people occupy a land first and then figure it out. Mm. The exact opposite happens here. You know, it's like it's figured out already, and then you're going to possess the land, right? Which is which is really wonderful. So they go into it knowing exactly this is what it means to be holy. You use the word holy, right? This is what it means to be set apart, to be God's people as you occupy this land. So it's not left up to you to figure it out on your own, right? Yeah. Uh, you're not radically thrown back on yourself to figure out what it means to be human. Uh, God is going to establish it for you because, frankly, you don't know what it is to be human. <laughs> you know, God has to reveal that to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, what you said there about, you know, thinking about taking the promised land and just thinking forward how the, the narrative progresses after Leviticus, I mean, the battle plans for the people of Israel are always different than what human generals would, would come up with. You know, the Lord doesn't give battle plans to his people. Here's how you're going to go in. Here's the first city you need to take and all that. I mean, that, that will come in Joshua, but it's always different than what we'd expect. Rather, it's just a given the promised land is yours because he has promised it. Here's how you're going to live in that. Again, it, it's all coming to the people as a gift. That's that's fantastic. So let's keep let's keep talking about this more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Martin Dressler this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, September 27th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 to 55 with Pastor Martin Dressler. He serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, prior to the break, we were talking about the way that the Lord speaks to Moses. This is 
his word to the people he gives these matters are so certain that this land will belong to the people, or perhaps it won't actually belong to the people. This is one of the important points throughout this chapter is who actually owns the land. What does Leviticus chapter 25 have to say about that? Yeah, no, so I think that that is really significant. So uh, referring back to verse two again, uh, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, <clears throat> that's what I think is so significant. Um, the, the question, you know, land is, is huge. It's, it's a huge uh, uh, feature throughout the Old Testament as far as the people of Israel can, are concerned because uh, that's part of the promise that God made to Abraham is that he would <clears throat> inherit uh, land of you know, the, the promised land. Um, so it's what God promised to Abraham. It's what the Israelites crossed the Jordan to inherit. The, the psalmist in Psalm 130, uh, it's what he yearns for as he's uh, weeping by the waters of Babylon. How can we sing the songs of Zion? in a foreign land. So, so land is, is, is very important because it's bound up in the covenant. But again, uh, it, and it comes again very clearly in the book of Leviticus that uh, the land always belongs to God. The land always belongs to God. And that's why it is finally restored uh, in the Jubilee years, right? because it's a reminder that you had these people to whom the land is given in the first place, and then they can sell it out. But honestly, it doesn't belong to the person who buys it, nor does it truly belong to the person to whom it was given in the first place. It belongs to the giver of the land, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? That kind of, that kind of motif runs through here very, very heavily. Um, so you got that going on. The houses aren't, are not exactly the same, but uh, at least for the, the Levites, they are. And insofar as they are tied in with the land, you know, again, outside the city walls, that's certainly the case. And the same thing is really driven home when it comes to the question of, of servants. Um, they are released on the Jubilee because human beings belong to God, right? Um, that was something that was really radical when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people go so that they can worship God, right? That's a huge, huge uh, departure from the normal way of doing things according to the Egyptian way of thinking. Um, thought was, again, these slaves belong to Pharaoh. And in no way were Israelites to consider Israelite servants to belong to them, right? They belong to God. And they were, in that sense, on the same footing, ontologically speaking, right? They are equal in their standing before God, for sure. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of what you're, you're saying, I, I think, goes back to the fact that that God is the one who created all things. Even, I think you quoted there from Psalm 24, the, the earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. We are here as his creatures, given, I mean, always as those given to. And then thinking back to the, the role of, of creation or humanity within creation as those who are given dominion over the land. You know, I think a lot of what the Lord is doing here in Leviticus chapter 25 fits very much into his the way that he originally designed his creation to work. It seems that he's trying to, at least in part, to put that back into play for the people of Israel here. No, that's totally true, right? So, I mean, these practices really are to remind them what it is to be human. So even even consider, you know, the Ten Commandments. I know that's outside of my, <laughs> that's outside of my sphere here this morning, but but that's really what the Ten Commandments are, right? It's, it's uh, you can think about it as a couple different ways, but it's, it's I, I sometimes call it the complete idiot's guide to being human. You know, it's like it's you've, been in, you've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. You don't know what it is to be God's people. Uh, so here are the bullet points that sort of unpack that for you, give you the guidelines. Or, or you could call it something like um, the rules of the game, 
you know, the, the rules of the game. So if, if, you're, if you're God's people, this is what it looks like to be God's people, which at times is a, is a burden because we, we clash up against it in our sinfulness. But on the other hand, it's a joyful thing to be the people of God. And it's like if you, if you well, think about it this way, right? So if you, if, you, if you buy a new board game or something like that and you're excited about it, you want to learn the rules. You want to know what it is to play this game, to be a character, you know, or if it's a role-playing game, you want to know what it is to be a character in this game. And the same thing is true with, with these rules. And so this is part and parcel of that. It's all about how to be uh, a human being as God designed us to live. And, and that plays out you know, in three main areas in relationship to God himself, uh, in relation, which is quorum Deo, uh, in relationship to other people, quorum Hominibus, and then also in relationship to creation as a whole, which really comes through very clearly here in this quorum Naturae, idea about our relationship with with the land in particular um so you mentioned the um uh the the genesis uh, passage and the whole dominion concept yeah. um that is really kind of a, a wonderful thing because it's a, it's an invitation uh to dominion but the, the the problem with that word dominion is that it has some negative connotations because sure. of the way that it's used today um so uh one example would be uh, so you're not going to hear this on their on the recorded date, but the Cardinals actually won yesterday, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> By this time in September, the season's almost over. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it probably continued that, but um, so they, they they have been dominated by almost every other team in the major league in major league baseball. That's not a good thing, you know. Um, it's a bad thing. It's sort of like being ground into the dirt. But that's not really the idea of dominion that God has when it comes to His creatures having dominion over the earth. Um, some people have translated as, uh, you know, dominion among or lordship among uh, or, you know, rulership for the sake of. If you think about it in medieval terms, you have a king uh, who rules for his own benefit. Well, that's a bad king. A good king rules for the sake of his people. He's the kind of king that hears things like, you know, he's just riding through the fields and he sees uh, the, the, the people that are, you know, on his land that in the feudal, feudal system who are working the ground. And they'll cry out to him, Lord, have mercy. Help me settle this. You know, uh, I got this problem going on. Can you help me address this? And he actually hears that, you know, and he addresses that. Um, so stewardship uh, or, or, you know, being stewards of the land or, or gardeners who are caretakers, all of this kind of stuff is sort of bound up in there. So you've got, you've got that going on, right, that, that uh, we have dominion, but it's for the sake of the land as well. That's not only for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the whole of God's creation. Um, there's also uh, implicit in Genesis this invitation to Shabbat or this invitation to rest, uh, which is made very much ex explicit uh, in the book of, of Exodus, uh, in the Decalogue in particular. Right. Um, right. So talk yeah. more about that, the necessity of rest, because I mean, this here it's for the land particularly. So what's the why? Why rest? So the very, you know, I think the, at, at, at the very basic understanding would be that human beings simply need physical rest. Um, you just think about how, how many, well, I watch uh, various shows on a streaming network, right? And I can't tell you how many shows I get for mattresses, you know, or for sleep aids and stuff like that. It's like, I don't, what are you trying to tell me, people, you know? <laughs> but uh, so it's a massive industry, this, this sleep industry stuff. So we, we do need, you know, our bodies need time to recuperate. The land needs time to recuperate as well, and that you know that sort of thing is taken into uh, account even in, in modern uh, farming practices. Um, but but that's you know uh, you can actually see that that uh, Christians in certain denominations 
take that very base level understanding understanding of it as well. So uh, you know, I'm reading to my my kids right now, my children right now, um, uh, Little House on the Prairie, uh, or Farmer Boy. Yeah. And it's funny because I resonate with those books. Um, their practice on Sundays was you you really can't do anything fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, there's no loud talking, no laughing, um, definitely no working. Um, my, my father tended to go this way too. He wasn't exactly Lutheran, right? I mean, there were certain things that were Lutheran about him, uh, but he had this very uh, literal reading of the Sabbath command as well. So we weren't allowed to play with friends when I was little, you know? Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, I'm saying, I understand where that comes from, but it's missing it's really missing the big picture here, right? It's missing the, the larger uh, uh, frame of what God is trying to accomplish here. So the, the, sure. the whole point is to, is to remind the Israelites of what it means to be creaturely, what it means to be creaturely, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also uh, these practices are a sign and a type of what uh, Jesus would, would one day do, which is namely to make us fully human creatures again through his death and resurrection. So really, if you think about it, this whole Sabbath rest practice is aiming at and pointing toward the shalom or the peace that God would one day establish through his son. And we're still waiting the culmination of that when his son returns, but that's ultimately where all this stuff is sort of pointing. All right, so so take us, take us farther in that direction because there is more than just good agricultural practices happening in this chapter. There's, there's wisdom in letting the land lie fallow but there's more than than that happening. So take us into some of those conversations about what God is teaching here, his people, about what it means to be one of his creatures, to be a human creature particularly. All right, yeah. So <clears throat> we can do this on, on two uh, planes if you want. There's, there's a vertical and then there's a horizontal. So vertical dealing with our relationship with God uh, and horizontal dealing with our relationship with, well, basically the created realm, which includes humans and, and uh, nature, uh, all that kind of stuff. So as you mentioned uh, earlier, Excuse me, this whole idea of, of the givenness of stuff, right? Um, so how all of this comes as a gift from God. Well, that, that's absolutely true, not just of the land and not just of the house, but of literally every breath that human beings take, right? Uh, the only reason that we breathe is because God says, breathe. Uh, you get that picture right at the beginning of Genesis when God says, let there be. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful thing that God continues, says something like, let there still be. Right, and that's what he says. Every passing moment, that existence itself, being itself, uh, is a perpetual gift of God. It's it's, an, it's a remarkable thing. So so letting the land lie fallow, and then returning the land on the fiftieth year, it really shows this what I, you know this ontological contingency of the human creature. In other words, our 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 that at the base of what it means to be human is dependence is absolutely dependent. So some people have the idea that, you know, at the base of human being, of, of the human being is, is, you know, personal choice or freedom or something like that. Well, that's not the scriptural view. The scriptural view is we are absolutely and completely dependent and, and contingent. Uh, we have no existence whatsoever apart from God's will. So these, were, these, uh, these Sabbaths that they would take was a reminder of, of us not to idolize our own work, right? Which is something it's something that that was uh, in a common practice today for sure uh but definitely in in the land of egypt as well um it's a wonderful thing to be able to take a break uh you know on sunday morning even even if you take only that you know two hours for bible study in church that's time that could be spent doing something that's that's a quote profitable 
according to the standard understanding of that word in culture today, meaning making money or producing something, right? It's very unproductive in that way. And yet you walk out of church and the sun is still shining and you're still alive, right? And you've received the gifts of God. Um, That's an incredible thing. Yeah, the, I mean the 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 practice of of Sabbath, the rest that God gives to us, is a, it does prevent us from idolizing our work, both in the matter of creation, as we've been talking about, because that's the way that the third commandment is given, especially in Exodus twenty, and also then in the matter of salvation too. And of course, I mean, you know, we are Lutherans, of course, we're going to say this, but the way the Lord gives the third commandment in Deuteronomy five, He does say it's also not it's not only for the purpose of remembering that God is your Creator. But now it's for the purpose of remembering him as your redeemer. He's the one who rescued you from Egypt. So yet your work is not what's going to keep you alive. God's word is. And your work isn't what's going to save you. God's word is going to do that too. Again, taking the break is a wonderful reminder. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. Yeah, no, it's right. So, I mean, you know, you're saying that reminds me of the, the uh, tail end of Psalm 46. You know, be yeah. still or be, you know, uh, one of the professors at the seminary used to say, be limp. Like a like a you know a brand new baby uh, that uh, you're holding in your hands, completely defenseless. Be limp and know yada right. Know that I am the Lord. I'm I'm Yahweh. Um, that's a really incredible reminder to us. Um, yeah. So, and, and sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say so. That's how the Sabbath teaches us to relate to God. How does the Sabbath teach us to relate to each other? Yeah. Okay. Good. So. Um, Part of this in, in Genesis as well, it's the invitation for dominion, but it's also the, the reminder that we're created uh, in the imago dei or the image of God. And, and that's, a, that's a massive topic and we don't have time to, to delve, you know, to plumb the depths of that one this morning or possibly ever, but, but <laughs> all within a few minutes anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the mass of God are concerned, we, we can, or the image of God rather, we can think about it in terms of what Luther calls the, the masks of God uh, insofar as, God works through human beings to accomplish his work in the world, right? So it's sort of like he picks up human beings and puts them on, and then he does his goodness in the world through us, right? So uh, parents feeding their children, that's God feeding their children immediately, right? Through the means of um, his human creatures. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, 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 that plays out for us as in, in, in love for the neighbor uh, as, as a life that is... Uh, poured out for the sake of the neighbor and for the, the neighbor's thrive. And the, uh, the uh, uh, book of Leviticus really uh, picks up on that again, that it's, it, that it's not for the uh, domination of the neighbor, you know, in any way, but there are several practices that are trying to inculcate in the people of Israel a heart that is actually turned toward the neighbor and turned outside of oneself uh, toward the love of the neighbor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just think, you mentioned Pharaoh earlier, and you, you think about Pharaoh, if you don't take Sabbath, if you don't rest, then you become like Pharaoh and, and you become a taskmaster, taskmaster, a tyrant. God wants you to be like he is, right? To, to be in his image. And so taking that Sabbath then makes you merciful to the neighbor as he is merciful, right? It's, it's part of the whatever you worship, that's what you become. And so to be merciful like God, you, you take this rest. And it does, it, it prevents you from becoming a Pharaoh who's lording it over other people and rather, again, shapes you into that image of God that he's given so that you are a servant to your neighbor instead. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to Pharaoh, if you don't have the God of Jesus Christ, you have no alternative but to become a Pharaoh. Yeah. 
because you have no one in, into whose hands you can command the future, right? Yeah. Uh, for Christians, you know, we, we, know this, we know how this whole thing is going to end. We know it ends in resurrection. And so we can, try, we can, we can make decisions that the world would find foolish yeah. in trusting ourselves fully into God's hand, knowing that the end is going to restore all things. That's for right. Sure. That's right. Now, you, you, you mentioned Jesus, and you've, we've talked about him already, but let's talk a little more specifically. How does he fulfill the Sabbath year, the Jubilee, the matter of redemption, all this stuff in Leviticus chapter 25? Yeah, absolutely. So, so picking up uh, Isaiah uh, 61 is really significant here. So uh, the Spirit of the Lord is uh, God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, the reason that this is significant is because this is the passage that, that Jesus reads in Luke chapter 4. So what immediately precedes this is not only the temptation in the wilderness that Jesus undergoes, but prior to that, his baptism in the Jordan and his being anointed by the Holy Spirit as the one through whom God would bring about this cosmic jubilee, as it were, right? So for Israel, they're experiencing a very localized form of this jubilee uh, and this year of Sabbath that would uh, one that Jesus would bring in for the entirety of creation. And so that's kind of what we're getting, uh, what we're seeing here. So, you know, and you can see throughout Jesus' ministry that he has these little harbingers of what he is really intending to do. So the miracles are very common and frequent early on in his ministry, and they eventually kind of die out, right? He doesn't do many uh, miracles the closer you get to Holy Week, right? But he does things like uh, casting out demons, the healing of the, the sick. There, there's the Luke chapter 7 passage where there's a woman with this alabaster jar, and she anoints Jesus' feet, and the Pharisees say, you know, hey, if you, if you knew who this woman really was, uh, you wouldn't let this happen. But then Jesus goes on and tells a story about two debtors, right? Two debtors, one who owes 50 denarii and one that owes 500. And that's the question, you know, if their debts were forgiven, which would be the more grateful? Well, the one who owed 500, right? Um, and so here you have this idea of, of debts being forgiven. So he's, again, you know, not only with the Isaiah passages, he hinting toward the fact that he's the one who brings about the true jubilee, but here he's actually bringing about, at least for this woman, by forgiving her sins and, and canceling her debt. Um, so the fullness of it, again, is really brought about through his death and his resurrection. And it's through those things that we have shalom with God and the beginnings of shalom with all creatures, right? So shalom with God, Jesus is my kinsman redeemer, right? So he kind of covers my debt on the cross and pays for it so that I can actually now rest in God, knowing that he provides it all, right? The righteousness that I need that I do not have is given to me from outside of myself as a gift, as you were just talking about, right? And so that establishes this shalom, this rest, this uh, wholeness and, and completeness. When, when everything is clicking the way that it ought to click, right? That's kind of shalom. Um, that's provided by Jesus. Um, Shalom with others as well, right? This is uh, when, when you're in a right relationship with God, you no longer have to establish your right, righteousness before God on your own. And so now you are freed. That's the vertical, right? Now you're freed horizontally uh, to take care of your neighbor. So that, that promise of resurrection, again, frees me to live that whole life 
pour it out for my neighbor for the sake of the neighbor. And, and in that way, to image God to creation once again, right? to be a mask of God for my neighbor once again. So Jesus is the fulfillment in so many ways of Leviticus chapter 25. And we've talked a lot about the idea of rest of Sabbath. We've mentioned the third commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We come together to hear God's word, to receive that rest in him. So we've got about six minutes here, Pastor Dressler, to, to talk about, about this. How do these gifts fulfilled in Christ come to us in the divine service as we receive that Sabbath rest through the word? Okay, good. Yeah, so, so the small catechism does a great job here. Um, Luther says that, uh, that remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy means we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Now, you know, historically speaking, Luther is responding, I think, to Roman, Roman Catholicism where the word was not especially common in services. You know, it was, it was in Latin, and oftentimes sermons were really just expositions of uh, Aristotle or other uh, philosophers and things like that. Um, then on the opposite end of the, the spectrum, you have the enthusiasts who rely on sort of like a direct revelation and then also have no use of the word of God. So Luther's really trying to drive that home. No, 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 you have to be in scripture. Uh, but there's more to Sunday morning worship than that. You know, not only is it the place, and I'm going to pick up the obvious one here, not only is it the place where God actually delivers the goods, right? Through word and sacrament, he delivers the forgiveness, he delivers the shalom. So that, you know, at the, at, at the beginning, nearly the beginning of the service, when we sing the Gloria, you know, and we sing the, the same message that the angels uh, uh, proclaim to the shepherds, that there is peace, this shalom that God's bring. We, re we receive this through the gift of word and sacrament, but there's also more that's, that's going on here. Um, worship is a training, right? I mean, this is an aspect of it that we do often forget, but it is a training about really how to be human. It teaches us how passively to receive forgiveness from God. I love it when churches have kneelers. My church doesn't have kneelers, um, but I think it's a fantastic thing because it puts us, puts us in the proper posture. When we go up to receive communion and you extend your hands or some people open their mouths you know, to receive it directly, it puts us in the posture of beggars. So Luther's you know, that last post-mortem saying of Luther, right? posthumous saying of Luther, wir sind beter, das ist wahr. We are all beggars, this is true. Um, Extending our hands and receiving the, the body and blood of Christ is a reminder of that, that our righteousness is established entirely as a gift from God. But there's the other side of it too. When we confess our sins to God, it also teaches us to be people who can confess our sins to others, who can acknowledge our faults and not say something like, yeah, well, I'm sorry I did that, but, and then you go on and defend yourself and essentially you forgive yourself and deny that person the opportunity to exercise uh, forgiveness, right? Because you're too busy defending yourself. When we take on that posture of confession and absolution uh, in our everyday life that we rehearse in worship, that radically changes the game. Same thing with offering, right? When we, when we take offering, it's a reminder to us, hey, <clears throat> guess what? None of this actually belongs to me. It's like the land, <laughs> right? It belongs to God, and I am to practice generosity, and I'm, actually all these things are for the sake of my neighbor, right? It kills idols. It, when you put that money in the offering plate, or if you do it online, it's smashing false gods. And it's reminding you of whose it is and, and what you're supposed to be doing with it. Communion is the same deal. When we gather around the altar together, uh, we, we're actually binding ourselves with each other. And one of the phrases that I use um, prior to uh, the, the, the uh, service of the sacrament uh, here at Salem is that uh, not only are we confessing 
um, that that we uh, we share the same doctrinal understanding of things when when we commune together. We're also essentially throwing our lot in with each other, because by participating in this body and blood of Christ, we are saying we are of one body and we are throwing our lives together here. So in in worship, when we set apart that time uh, on Sunday morning, uh, we're being shaped and formed to live the rest of life also, in a sense, in this kind of Sabbath, so that all of life takes on this receptivity and this uh, uh, way of being in the world that really is uh, uh, imaging God to the rest of creation, to our neighbors in particular. Now, with about two minutes, Pastor Dressler, take this to to the end, to the to the final fulfillment, because we experience these things in part right now. How how does all of this come together at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? With about two minutes. Great. So we obviously we we don't do any of this stuff perfectly right now, right? I mean, I'm constantly uh, struggling to trust in God. We place our our trust and our our hopes and and our desires are messed up all the time. Uh, we chase after false gods, and we don't love our neighbors perfectly. Uh, but we also do have the Spirit, right? We have the Holy Spirit who's been granted to us. Um, and so it, it's sort of like the Romans 7 deal where we have this, this uh, constant struggle between the old nature and the new nature. On the last day, when Christ returns, that's when we will be returned fully to the, uh, to the image that God intended for us at the beginning. We're restored fully as his creatures. We're put back in that groove, that creaturely groove that God designed for us uh, at the beginning. This is all eighth-day stuff. So you mentioned the eighth day earlier, right? So Jesus rises from the dead on the eighth day, right? He doesn't rise on the Sabbath. He rises sort of at the beginning of a new creation. David, by the way, was the eighth son of Jesse. I just discovered that the other day. You know, seven sons, and then comes David, the new beginning. Same thing for us. When Jesus comes back, it's it's, it's a, a whole new beginning to things. And, and the rest here, now this is interesting. So that, that Sabbath rest will be fully um, uh, uh, instantiated there at, at, the, at the second coming of Christ. But that doesn't mean you'll be doing nothing. It doesn't mean you'll be lying around, lounging, right? No, it means you're freed to be human the way that you're always meant to be. Again, this receptivity toward God and love toward the neighbor. All of these things kind of come together and find the fulfillment in Christ when he returns. Yeah. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Pastor Martin Dressler serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 to 55. Pastor Dressler, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 25, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.